we have the amazing ability to outdo ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever done something that shocked you? Or maybe you've had children that shocked you with their ability to outdo themselves. That happens good. Sometimes that happens bad. Uh, you, you find that your children uh, were able to outdo themselves. Like, wow, I, I wasn't sure that you could break it worse than the last time you broke it, you know, uh, things like that. But, but we, as humans, have this ability to outdo uh, expectations uh, when encouraged properly. Uh, you might be surprised with a, an accomplishment. Uh, that's, that's always notable. But we do have our ability to outperform. I'm on, so if it's not, it's not me. So uh, we, we have sometimes an ability to outperform our less than stellar moments. Uh, and uh, both positive and, and negative things really come from some of the same uh, characters or, or natures of man. And one of those is our creative impulse. Right? We have a desire to create and, and explore and investigate things. And so sometimes uh, you, you find that you know, people in your house have explored things like the electrical sockets. Right? They've explored those and thought, these are things that might go good by sticking them into this place. And if you have a boy, they've done that. I did that as it's like a rite of passage. Uh, I did that as a, as a, a kid. My son's done that. It just, it's just something you have to explore. Now, we say, oh, why would you do that? Well, the thing is, they would do that because they don't understand why. Right? They're exploring. This is the first time. They don't understand principles of electricity. It's just a thing. You plug it in, there's, it, things happen when you plug it in. Uh, and so, so they're exploring. Uh, you're upset, but... We have to recall that they didn't know because they were never trained or taught. This is, this is the nature of mankind. And it's specifically one of the reasons why men live shorter lives than women. Right? Because men like to explore, maybe perhaps more than women. We, we, and this gets us into problems. So with that, we're turning to John chapter 11. And you're going to wonder what in the world that has to do with John chapter 11. That's okay. We're going to get there. John chapter 11. We're talking in this series about dead men who tell tales. We, we began last week by talking about Joshua and Caleb, uh, these men who were attempted uh, to be murdered almost just because uh, of, of some, a message of hope. We're going to look at a, a different message today. Uh, John 11... And we're going to read quite a little bit today, so I don't apologize for that, just informing you. John 11 says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent back word Jesus, uh, to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. I want to stop here. This is not Mary Magdalene. All right? That's just, that's a... Uh, Something that's kind of been around. There are three Marys that are often put into the same, or women who are often put in the same thing. This Mary, uh, Mary uh, Magdalene, and then there's a, a woman who was a woman of low repute uh, that is often, they're often put into the same person. They are three different women. I just want that to be out there. Uh, as we go on, you understand um, the setting. 
When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Or, and her sister and Lazarus. I'm sorry, I made her need better glasses yet. Um, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there uh, where he was two more days. He said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. You're going to go back there. Jesus answered and said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by the day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, because then he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. So the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking, however, of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you might believe. But let us go to him. <clears throat> so Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come uh, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in her home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I now know that even now, God will give you whatever you wish. And Jesus asked and said, or Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Mary answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? Yes, Lord, she said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after he said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. She said, the teacher's here. She said, uh, he's asking for you. Mary said this, he got up quickly, she went to him. Jesus had not yet entered into the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing, her that, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her and weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. When the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And Jesus once more was deeply moved. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And he said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, he's uh, a dead man. By this time there will be a bad odor. For he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped in strips of 
linen and cloth was around his face. And Jesus said to him, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith on him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. This man is performing miracles and signs. If we let him go, everyone is going to believe on him, and then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. We get into really what we're going to talk about next week if we read further, which is their attempts on Jesus' life. In the short term, however, before that, there's a discussion of all the steps that need to be taken. There is no denial that Jesus is who he says he is. Nor is there a denial that Jesus does what he is obviously doing. I think that's important. That Jesus is, is clearly portrayed and recognized by them as being a man of power. Which is why I, I began by talking about the idea of outdoing themselves. These men go above and beyond those who saw Joshua and Caleb. These men are, are more creative and, and um, uh, their, their audacity far outstrips Israel's audacity. And so again, we look at fear. All of these things are, are, are connected with fear. We talked about the fear of hope last week. The, that, that hope is an unknown when it comes down to it. We hope for something. Right? But, but we're uncertain. And so there's a little trepidation. There's a little fear. And so we see their fear. It's a, a little bit different of a fear. Last, last week we talked about the, their fear of, of having to go in and face these giants. But here what we see is the lack or, or the loss of control. These people enjoy a sway and a, a sphere of influence over common people. There are Pharisees, Sadducees, and they didn't like each other, actually. But they had a common enemy. See, the Sadducees were the priests. And that was their, their different philosophies within Israel. The, the Sadducees were the, the elites. And uh, they had control of the temple. And so whenever somebody that was their sphere of influence, right? We talked about the, the, the this morning in class, we we're talking about the theater of operation. Well, the, the Sadducees theater of operation and what they used over people was the temple. And they threatened to kick people out of the temple. Remember the blind man? Hey, who's, uh, who's, who did this to you? And, and how and why? And you're like, you want to be his disciple too? No, 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 no. We don't want to be his disciple. And so they kick him out of the temple. And that is the Sadducees largely doing that. That was the priests that, that have that sway. And they use that to get what they want. We have what you need. Or what you think you need. And we'll use that to coerce you. And these two groups, as I say, they, they disliked each other intensely. They both wanted control of Jerusalem. Jesus upsets what they're going to do. 
What if people no longer cared about the temple? What, what if that was just another building? I would lose every bit of leverage that I have. See? But this is also a financial loss. And, and for both Sadducees and Pharisees, we'll get to the Pharisees in just a second. Jesus saying things that diminish the temple goes beyond just the, the temple, all those sellers in the marketplace. Who's renting out those booths? Sadducees. Who's making a little cut off the top? Sadducees. Well, if that stuff goes away, my, my lifestyle might get a little bit uncomfortable. So there's a little financial thing here going into their fear. My living is not going to be so nice. But I want to talk about Pharisees for a second. What is Jesus called here? Martha sends a message to tell Mary what? Who's here? The teacher. That word is rabbi. I know that's kind of a weird, because we, we think of a, a rabbi as some old Jewish guy with a little yarmulke and a little book and the little tassels and everything. Jesus was one of those. I don't know if they wore yarmulkes back then. Jesus was a rabbi. He was recognized as such by friends and by common people. <clears throat> Good rabbi. Why do you call me rabbi? Right? He was recognized as a teacher. And that put a crimp on the Pharisee style. Because the Pharisees had a, a different sphere of influence, and theirs was the synagogue. They were teachers of the law. That was where they did their, their little act. Synagogue had to do with teaching. And, and there were probably more Pharisees than Sadducees. But the Sadducees, they, they, were, they had something that you couldn't eliminate. They had the temple. So no matter how small a minority they were, they, they still were going to be a force to be reckoned with. The Pharisees were the ones teaching the people and trying to get popularity through the law. And so Jesus teaching, well, where are people now leaving? People are leaving the synagogues and they're going out to a hill. Well, that threatens me if I'm a Pharisee. Not that many people in the synagogue this week. Where are they going? Well, Jesus is teaching on the hill. And he's doing these miracles. Ooh, we got to stop that. And so this is what's going into it. It's their loss of control. It's their loss of financials. Their bottom line. And so as you go through this, you kind of get the idea 
when you look at, at the things Jesus says, that they both kind of overlooked the corruption of the other. The Pharisees didn't say anything about what was going on in the temple. And the Sadducees didn't say anything about what's going on in the synagogues. They have, even if they dislike each other, it's what they know. Right? They're comfortable with it. They have their own thing, but now someone's coming along that threatens both of them more than the other one does. Right? Jesus threatens the, the Sadducees more than the Pharisees do, and, and vice versa, same true. Jesus threatens the Pharisees more than the Sadducees threaten them. This is a dynamic we can't have. Both of us are going to go extinct. We've got to do something about this Jesus. So we're going to go to the next chapter, chapter 12, and we're going to look at how they outdo themselves. John 12, chapter, or 12th chapter, verse 9, beginning. Just going to read a short section here. So meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and it came, not just because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. I want you to understand their panic. Now we've talked about what's at stake for them. I want to look at what they see as a threat. Is not just Jesus. Now, this follows the, the plot line of really any crime movie. If you were making a crime movie, this, this is the story right here. It's the story of Lazarus and Jesus. There's an obstacle, so you've got to get rid of the rival, right? It's like a mob movie. Get rid of the rival. But in the process of that, you've got to get rid of the body, right? You've got to... Teach them to swim with cement loafers and all that, right? That's, that's, that's what's going on here. You've got to get rid of the rival, but you've got to cover up the evidence. I don't want to make this so gruesome. Let's, uh, let's consider a nicer example. You're caught or you're afraid of getting caught doing something you shouldn't do. Go back to when you're a kid or if you've had kids. You gotta shut up your friend. You're with your friend. Oh, let's say you're smoking in the house. Just random. Now you come to the realization that you could get caught. You hadn't thought about this when you were smoking in the house. So first of all, you and your friend have to get your story straight, right? You gotta shut up the friend. But then you've got to cover up the evidence. So now you're running through the house like a crazed man before your mom gets home with all the aerosols that you can find and candles and everything else because you've got to cover up the evidence. And you know your mom's going to get home and she's going to wonder why in the world it smells like a Glade factory. This is the panic. You're not rational. 
And you're laughing because you've either been caught doing this or because you've had kids. It's one of the two or both. The solution, however, to kill someone that has already been dead, that's creative. That's amazing. How did they ever come up with this idea? I know. We'll kill Lazarus. That's genius. Panic does not lend itself to an intellectual process. It is short-sighted. What they know is that there's a dead man running around telling tales. That's all they know. But see, every crime movie uh, is that dead men don't tell tales. But we've got a dead man doing it. Let's go out and see it. First of all, oh boy, this is real. We've got to deal with it. I want you to think about the miracles that happen here. A dead man rose. What is the first thought? Because more miracles happened here than just one. I suppose we could sit down and come up with a whole list of things that happen here. But Jesus has had to do more than just raise a dead man from a grave. Jesus, it is called to his attention that there's a problem with raising a dead man who's been in the grave for four days. Jesus said, no problem. Just humor me. I have the ability to raise somebody from the dead. I think I can tell, you know, I think I can spray some glade in the air, okay? So he undoes four days of decomposition. That's impressive. And we have another problem, and that is that Lazarus died of something. So he's got to correct the problem so that Lazarus can continue to live after he's like, I raised him up. Oh, I forgot to fix whatever. And he dies again. You know, it's like, we have to fix the problem. So Jesus does that. I don't know what all Jesus did, but he does miracle upon miracle here when we start thinking about this. And these geniuses go, we'll kill him again. You know, if Jesus wants him alive, it's obvious that he has the ability to keep him alive. What, are you going to kill him again? And then Jesus goes, watch this. Boom, he comes out of the grave. How, are we, how often are we going to do this? There is no thought to the possibility that Jesus could just keep raising him from the dead. Because fear is so short-sighted. They didn't try to discredit the miracle because that, that ship has sailed. They're just trying to be creative. And this is the best that they've got in their fear. I want to talk about the real lesson. Matthew chapter 3. I want to go over here. Matthew chapter 3. There's an interesting statement. And it's before Jesus has even started his ministry. John the Baptist 
verse 4 is speaking about Christ. Beginning, it says, uh, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust, wild honey, and people were going out to him from Jerusalem. And all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins, and they were being baptized him in the Jordan River. But when the many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came out, where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourself that we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And we go, what in the world? Stones are going to become people? That makes no sense to me. Lazarus is a child of Abraham. And from these stones, God has brought forth a child of Abraham. I think that's kind of the idea. That, that God has the power. If he wants children, there's a bunch in the grave. And if you're not going to pay attention, I can have people pay attention. God has incredible power. And Christ is going to have that ability. And they had no idea what in the world he's talking about. Because Jesus hasn't started his ministry yet. And John didn't raise anybody from the dead. These people really don't understand this idea. God's power. It's a cryptic statement. Some of the people plotting Lazarus' death were probably standing here when John said this, which is funny. I find it a little ironic. And it must have sounded ridiculous to them. And I wonder if there was ever just an inkling of a thought, of a reflection about what John the Baptist said, but I doubt it. In our text, and this is where I want to get to by way of application. There are two incredible statements of faith. They're misguided a little bit, and we might miss them as statements of faith. But this Martha's statement, if we go back to John 11, verse 22. Well, verse 21. Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And this is why we think it's not much faith here. That doesn't sound like a very faithful statement. But then she says in verse 22, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's kind of a statement of faith. Spoken by someone with a Kind of a shaky faith. We often, I think Martha gets a bad rap. And we do that because we know of the other passage where, where Martha was really all upset about, you know, the dinner being prepared for Jesus. And, and, and Jesus tells her, listen, Mary, Mary has, you know, chosen the better part. It's Mary who walks out of town to meet Jesus as he's coming. Or excuse me, Martha, not Mary. Martha deserves a little bit more. Martha is the one with this incredible statement of faith. Beyond, beyond the immediate possibility of a miracle, we're going to get that in just a second. She's the one 
Now, I'm not saying that Mary didn't believe in this, but Martha is the one that we know and have recorded as an understanding of the resurrection. She's, point, she's, she's given up Lazarus, and in a way that's not much faith, but in a greater aspect, she's a, a, attached herself to the hope of the final resurrection, and that is notable. And she deserves credit for that. But there's something interesting in this, in this statement. Because while she doesn't immediately think of a miracle for her, notice how she kind of hints at it. She doesn't ask for it. She's misguided a little bit. It's a, it's a weird statement of faith. But she says, you know, if you hadn't, if you had been here, I know you could have prevented it. That's a statement of faith in a weird, critical way. That's a statement of faith. I know you had the ability to prevent death. That's amazing. But then she says, even now, I know that you have whatever you ask. She doesn't come out and ask for it. But you can tell it's in the back of her mind. And there's something about Martha that she can't quite ask for it. And I don't know what it is. Maybe she thought she wasn't worth it. I mean, this is Jesus after all. Maybe I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy to ask for a miracle from Jesus. Well, you could get into all sorts of things. What might be the background for that? That esteem of yourself. But there's another statement in here that I want to get to, another statement of faith that you comes from a very surprising source. And it is kind of a weird statement. But in chapter 11, back up a little bit. Verse 16. This probably doesn't strike you as a statement of faith. So Thomas, called Didymus, which means the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go and die with him. Now that sounds like a really negative statement, and that doesn't surprise me, because I know who it comes from. It comes from a pretty negative guy. There are those people that are very negative. And guess what? Christ decided to select one of these people for his inner circle. So he's there for a reason. No one else said this. Thomas is the fatalistic one in the group. And Thomas is the one that has issues with resurrection. But his statement of faith is one that's different. It's not a statement about Jesus' ability. It's not a statement about faith in Christ per se. But it's a statement of personal commitment. Jesus is going to die. I'm going with him. That is impressive in a weird upside down way. Fatalistic. 
Perhaps. He's the one that just assumes. So for him to assume the finality of death and to still be willing to go along with it, but that's a character trait worth noting. And what is the story that this dead man tells? The story of Lazarus. What is this tale? Is that death is pretty weak. It's just permanent as a moment. That's as permanent as it is. Death. What is death? Because of Christ, it's nothing. That's what these people are scared of. We don't have anything to hold over these people anymore. The greatest thing that you could possibly hold over somebody is death. And Lazarus has just illustrated um, not really that powerful. Well, sometimes the process is long and uncomfortable. But the moment, it is the smallest measurable moment in the universe. It's there, and then whatever. It's over. We're sad because there's separation. For us, it seems permanent. But the moment is just the moment, and then there's whatever there is. And yet we are so afraid of it. Our lives are consumed by trying to avoid it. It is inevitable. Lazarus died again. I don't know if they killed him or if he just died of natural causes. But Lazarus died again. I know a man. His name is Burton Barber. He was a man that helped establish my Bible college. He's died twice. He was dead for four minutes after a massive heart attack. They revived him. Lived, I forget how many more years, six or seven more years. He was dead. He's come back to life. Died again. Some people get a chance to die twice. But it's a moment. If you're lucky, I guess you get two moments. But we're so afraid of it. So afraid that for a year we've allowed it to terrorize us. We've allowed it to terrorize us into these uh, styrofoam jello Jesus cups. We've allowed people 
with no hope of eternal security, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees, to determine how we live and how we will worship. And we're waiting for them to get hope as a cue for how we will return. Men without faith, we are waiting for them to determine when we return to worship as normal. So here's the paradox. When you accept that death is absolute, much like Thomas, it frees you to live. Think about that. Because when you accept that death is absolute, it loses power. And you can accept that it's only a moment. Lazarus woke people up to that and it scared them, as I say, it scared them to death. In history, when you look at the early Christians and their martyrdom, it, it produced kind of a weird thing. As it went on, and I don't suggest that we do this, but there's a weird thing that happened they actually wanted to figure out how to be martyrs. Is that weird? So much so that they would try to go, they would go into temples and they would, they would instigate it. They, they would like tear down, they, they would tear down the statues of pagan gods hoping that they would get arrested and murdered. Is that weird? Okay, so we're, we're, I'm not endorsing that. But I'm telling you, that's what happened when they acknowledged death, that, they, that, that martyrdom no longer had any power to the point that they went to the other extreme. But there was no fear of it. And so my challenge, as we leave, is not merely to accept the reality of the afterlife like Martha did. That's noble, and we should begin there but to embrace it like Thomas. I don't know what's happening in the future, but I know I'm going to die. I don't know how, don't know when, but it will happen. And if we embrace it, the truth of it, if we embrace the truth of it, the reality of the single moment then it frees me. I don't have to be afraid of what they do to me because I know it's coming one way or the other. Do your worst. When life is not about avoiding death, then I am free to explore my Christianity.
I'm free to fail and discover some shocking things. But I will be free to accomplish things that I did not imagine that I could.